That's mocking. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. church we are in the book of Colossians chapter 3 this morning and so as you are turning there uh, let me remind you that uh, we probably got a few more weeks in this series and I didn't tell first service but we're probably going to be going from here to first Corinthians so if you want to you can begin studying and looking ahead of where we're going to be we have one more chapter in Colossians chapter 4 and then we'll be moving right over we do have Easter in the first uh, coming weeks but then we've got uh, it'll probably take us a few months to get through the book of 1 Corinthians. So as you're finding your place, let me begin this morning by giving you a quote by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was one of our great pastors, and, and he rightly said, and listen to this quote, he said, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible. The other 99 will read the Christian." Let that sink in a second, because that is a very true statement, and it ought to be a very sobering statement for us as believers, that there is a watching world out there that they want to know that Jesus Christ makes a difference in the lives of those who follow Him. It's not enough for us to profess Christ, but what we're supposed to do is live out our faith in Christ. And I want to tell you something, I don't want you to ever forget this, that if you've been saved, you will be changed. If you've been saved, you will be transformed. There is no way for a person to come into a, a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to walk away unchanged. Now that change uh, begins to occur over time. When we start our walk with Jesus, what we've really done is we've, we've turned from the path that we were walking and we've started to turn to follow Him and, and we start going a new direction. And there are many things in our life that they may change very immediately and there are other things that begin to change over time. But I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that I can know Jesus I can say that I'm following Jesus, but there is never any change in my life. Be sure to remember that Jesus said that you will be known by your fruits. There's evidence of life. There's evidence of fruitfulness in the life of a believer. And as we're following Jesus, he tells us in chapter 3 of Colossians that there are some things that have to be done in a believer's life. In both of these sections, in chapter, one, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, also 12 through 17, which we're going to read here in just a moment, in both of these sections, he gives us the reason why we are changed. He, he talks about our identity. He talks about our position in Christ. And then he goes in, and in one section he says, there are things that you need to take off. And then he's going to come back. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. This week he's going to say, now listen, you've taken those things off. You've taken almost as you would those clothes off. And now he says you need to put something 
else on. So today we're going to talk about what we put on. Now the reason he's given us these things, I don't want you to lose sight of the bigger picture of what's happening in this chapter. He's saying that whether or not we put on or take off these things has everything to do with the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. He's saying that if you have those things that are, that are soiled and dirty and, and sinful, things like anger and wrath and malice and all those other things that he mentioned in the first 11 verses, he says if you have all those things, listen, the church is going to be in trouble. The unity of the body of Christ is going to be in trouble. People aren't going to see love and they're not going to see kindness and they're not going to see patience and they're not going to see forgiveness. All they're going to see is division and, and discord. And he says, these things that you take off, they are what hinder relationship. They're what hinder community. He says, but these things that I'm asking you to put on, if you have them, this is what Jesus meant when he said, he, they'll be able to look at us and they will know that we are his disciples. So today, this has to do with community. What we're telling you and what we're talking about this morning isn't, I don't want you to see it as a, these are things you do and these are things you don't do in a vacuum and your own individual view of what God is saying here. But I want you to think of how it affects all of us, whether or not we live out these things that we are being told in this text. So let me read it to you. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. It's a short section, but it is loaded. So in verse 12, it says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This morning, I want us to see, first and foremost, out of verse 12, our position in Christ. The reason we can live a transformed life, everything that baptism symbolized this morning is that the old is gone and, and, and now God has made everything new. And the reason we celebrate that is because we have a new a position in Jesus Christ. It is significant to note that the words that are used in verse 12 are the very things that God used to say and still says about the children of Israel. If I were to ask you who are the children of God in the Old Testament, you wouldn't hesitate to say it was the Jews, it was the children of Israel. They were a people that out of the whole world, God chose them. He chose them for a purpose. He chose them for a plan that he wanted to fulfill through them. And he called them to live differently. That was the whole basis of the law. They were to be a holy people, a set-apart people, a people that lived very differently than everyone else around them. And we know that they were beloved of God. These three words are how he used to describe the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And now we see that they are the very words that he uses 
to describe us. Now, folks, I hope that you find peace in your heart when you come to grips with the truth. That these precious words given to the Jews have been given to the Gentiles, it reminds us, and it ought to give us joy that His love and His grace, it went to the ends of the earth. That's how it got to us. And it's how it's going to get to everyone else that is yet to hear the name of Jesus. And so I want you to think, we are chosen. What is our position in Christ? What is true of us? If I say that I am a believer in Jesus, what does that mean? First and foremost, it means you're chosen. That means that when you weren't seeking after God, guess what he was doing? He was seeking after you. You're the prodigal in the New Testament that was going and trying to live your own way. You rejected the Father. You rejected His will. You rejected His way. You wanted to cut yourself off from anything to do with Him and go do what you wanted to do. And you would think that in that scenario that you would find that the Father would reject you, would never let you come home. But what do we find in the New Testament? That when that young man finally came home, the Father was watching and waiting, wasn't he? And the second he saw the son, what did he do? He ran to him. He fell on him, it says. And he kissed his son and he restored him. You see, every picture that we have in the New Testament Scripture as it pertains to us is that we were far from God. And guess who spanned the distance? It was God. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. He sought us. We've hidden from Him. And what a blessing to know that God, even though we were sinners, even though we were broken, even though we were lost, even though we were hopeless and helpless, aren't you glad that Jesus still chose to come and to save us? And He says, not only are you chosen, but He breaks it down further and He says, you're holy. What is your position in Christ? You're holy, the Bible says. Now, you're sitting here today and you're going, I don't feel holy. Aaron, if you could follow me around, you'd know that sometimes in the things that I say or the things that I do, that I'm kind of a work in progress. Well, listen, God knows you're a work in progress because holiness kind of has two pictures to it. There is a practical holiness, which means that every day that we live and we are trying to understand and know God and follow Jesus, He has saved us, He's changed our heart, and we begin a process that we're familiar with. It's called maturity, isn't it? And we grow in maturity as believers. I wish we could go from zero to hero, right? I wish we could go from being a loser to having it all together for God, right? That's not, is that how it works? It, it doesn't work for the pastor that way, and it probably doesn't work for you that way. In fact, I would say 100% guarantee all of us in here are still growing in our faith and in our walk with Jesus. Why? Because our holiness, in one sense, it is progressive. We grow into that relationship with Jesus every day that we live and we seek to understand His Word and follow Him. We grow more and more like God, more and more like His Son, Jesus. We start to look like Him. But there's another part of holiness. Not the practical holiness, but what we would call the positional holiness. I want you to know that as God looks at you today, He understands that you're growing. But He also looks at you today, and you know what He sees? The righteousness of Jesus in your life. 
I want you to know that if you've never understood what Jesus did on the cross, on the cross when Jesus died, he took all of your sins away. Every sin that you had ever committed, it was placed on Jesus, and the penalty of sin was death. The penalty of sin was separation from God. And for the first moment in his life, Jesus understood. He knew what it was like to be separated from his Father. That's why he said, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? The weight of all the world's sins were on Jesus. And he died and he paid the price for those sins. But that wasn't all that happened. On that same day, in that same moment, when all the sins were taken from your account, and listen, your account was full. He emptied that account of sin. And he filled it with his righteousness. Let that sink in a second. Did Jesus ever sin? No, the Bible says that he was without sin. The Bible says that he was the spotless lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world because he was innocent. The innocent died for the guilty and the perfect life that Jesus lived. He didn't just take our sin, but he filled our account. And as Jesus looks at us, isn't it amazing that he sees Jesus? He sees Jesus's righteousness. So in one way, listen, when God says, I am holy, he means I am holy. And he's helping me live it out moment by moment, day by day. You're chosen, church. You're holy, church. That's what he says you are. And then he finishes with a statement that I love. He says that you're beloved. Now, most times in Scripture, when we see that word beloved, how many times in the New Testament, who is it referring to? Jesus. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And the reason that you and I are beloved, you know why? Because I read it a few minutes ago when we were talking earlier in chapter 3 in Colossians. What did it say? That we are dead and now we are alive in Christ and our life. Christ is our life. And listen to what it says. That we are hidden with Christ in God so that when God sees us, who does he also see? He sees Jesus in us. And we are beloved because we are in his son whom he loves. Our identity now is wrapped up in Jesus. Our identity, and, and, and think about, I want you to feel the weight of this coming off of you. Not so that you can sin, but so that you can find victory over sin. I want you to think about what I'm about to say. Our identity has nothing to do with our performance anymore. That's why so many of us are frustrated in our Christian life. It's because somehow we think that we have to do something for God rather than letting God do something through us. All he asked of you, all he's ever asked, is that you would surrender. All he's ever asked is that you would die so that he could live. He's never said that your identity is now bound up. I gave you a chance. Now, now here's a fresh start. Good luck. That is not Christianity. Our identity has nothing to do with our performance. You know what it has to do with? Grace and salvation. And I stand here today, and I hope that you will declare with me, all that I want out of my life is for me to become everything Jesus said I could become. Through his power, through his strength, 
because of his presence in my life, because of the new heart that he's given me, the new nature that he's given me, the work that he's done in me, all I want is for it to flow out. I want to be who he said I am. And that is very different than trying to do it all by yourself. So he says our position in Christ, chosen, holy, beloved. But then secondly, still in verse 12, we see our purity in Christ. Not just our position, but our purity. Because if that's true, if we're chosen and holy and beloved of God, it changes the way that we live. And I want you to know that Christianity isn't a bunch of don'ts. Because I want you to see that in both chapters, we have some of the don'ts. There are things that as believers we should not do and we should, frankly speaking, be against, right? But is that all that we should be known for, what we're against? He doesn't say in the text before, put off and then just stand there naked, right? We put off clothes and then what do we do? We hopefully put, thank you for doing that this morning, church. Because we put off and then we put back on. We take off that which was dirty and sinful and a mess and, and, and we are cleansed and then we put back on clean clothes, right? And so that's what's wrong many times in the church today is that we focus on the don'ts. We focus on the thou shalt nots. We, we focus on what we shouldn't be and what we shouldn't do. And we never fail to understand that there's so much more. He says, put those away, but now put this on because the world wants to know not just what we're against, but the world wants to know what are we for? What difference does it make now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? So he says, listen, our position leads to our purity in Christ. I want you to know that, that, that there's a transformation, a change. We throw off, we replace. The best example of it, I think, biblically, is when we look at the life of Zacchaeus. When Jesus saved Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus was this man who was rejected by society. He was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was a man that was known for his greed. He was considered a traitor. And out of all the people in the crowd that day, Jesus chose him, right? He had climbed up a tree because he was so short. <laughs> he couldn't see Jesus. And Jesus saw him, right? And he said, today, Zacchaeus, out of all the people that were there, Jesus looked at him and said, I'm going to your house today. And he went, and he and his household, they were saved. And he took off what he was known for, which was his greed. But I want you to remember how that story ended. That he didn't just take off greed and selfishness, but there was things that he put back on. And you remember what they were? He put back on generosity. This man that once would steal from you now was generous to you. Everything that he had taken, he had suddenly repaid. And this man, nobody recognized him. No one hardly knew him anymore because he was different now. We ought to have purity. These virtues that we're going to talk about, you know, we could say that verses 1 through 11 listed kind of the vices. And we could say that these are virtues, but I want you to look a little deeper at what these really are because they're not just virtues that we are somehow, you know, making happen in our life. These aren't virtues. These are a person. When we say put on these things, what we're actually saying to you is that when you clothe yourself, you're going to clothe yourself with Jesus. 
who He is, His character. If you've died and He is living in and through you, if you've surrendered your life and you've given Him control, then understand that the things that are going to come out of you are going to look just like Him. So when I say take off and put on, what you're putting on is Christ Himself. And these are things that God gives us by grace. They are gifts. They're not earned. They're not something that we can manufacture ourselves. These are gifts. These are God's grace bestowed upon us. In fact, Jesus is all these things that we're going to discuss. And I'm going to tell you something. We need these things. We need them in the church. We need them in our lives. You need these things. Listen, these things, these virtues, these graces that we're going to discuss, you need them before you ever get out of bed in the morning. We're going to talk about compassion, gentleness, kindness, things like patience, things like forgiveness. You need those even when you're in bed, don't you? Let me tell you why. Because the night before when you tried to lay down and go to sleep, you got the neighbors going nuts next door, right? And you're sitting there and you're fuming. And what do you need? You need all those things. And then the next day you're already tired because of what the neighbors did. And then at 630, what happens? You're thinking, I'm going to sleep in. It's Saturday. And then all of a sudden you hear the door open. Mommy? daddy and you're like where did these demons come from (laughs) sleep and then you say crawl in bed honey we're gonna get a couple more hours sleep and then two seconds after you close your eyes the neighbor starts ripping on a chainsaw and see already you hadn't even got out of bed you need all these things how much more when you get out of bed and you start to face people and you start to deal with people are you going to need all these things that we are going to discuss. And God says, I give them to you as a gift. Put aside those other things and let me give you these things and let me live through you is what he's basically asking you. And there's three ways. I'm going I'm to kind of mold uh, these verses around 12 and 13. That out of all the things that are there, I'm going to kind of put them in a grouping of three. He says, So as you've been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The first thing that Jesus asks of us is that we put on a heart that cares. When you look through that list, This is the basic definition of what it means to see other people in your life and actually care about them. See, most of us are too busy in life to care. We don't see the hurts of people. We don't see the needs of people today. We're as busy as we've ever been. Everything in life, they say, is to make life easier. And I truly believe that in many ways it's made life harder because we don't even hardly talk to each other around a dinner table, much less recognize the people around us that we don't know. And when we have the heart of Jesus, we have a heart that we can say truly cares. If you could say anything about Jesus, you would have to say that Jesus was compassionate and Jesus was kind and Jesus was gentle and Jesus was patient. 
When you think about the compassion of Jesus, I want to remind you how many times in the Bible it says that he showed compassion. One time it said literally that as he was coming over the hill and he saw Jerusalem, here is God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God. He looks at Jerusalem, and what does it say that he does? It says that he began to weep. God crying. You ever ask yourself the question, what makes God cry? What makes God weep? It says that he looked out over that city and he wept because he had compassion. That was the word. Because he realized that they were like sheep without a what? Without a shepherd. They were lost. They were in danger of death. And in that moment, the Bible says that, again, he set his heart towards Jerusalem and he set his path towards Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus was going to do something about that lostness, wasn't he? You see, when we talk about what compassion is, there's one part of compassion we easily understand and and we get, but it falls short of the true definition Compassion, yes, is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. That we recognize people are hurting, we have to see. Jesus, that wasn't the only time that he did it. There was another time he was walking through town, and here comes this funeral procession, and there is a woman who was absolutely beside herself. She is mourning, she is crying, she is broken. Why? Because that casket that everyone carrying is her son. What does Jesus do in a moment like that? Does he just say, wow, that's really sad and that's, that's terrible. I hate that that happened and, and turn and walk away? No, it says literally Jesus had compassion for that widow whose son had died. And he walked over and by his words, he resurrected that child. And gave him back to his mother. Because you see, it's more than a sympathetic understanding of the distress that people are in. It goes further than that. What it actually is, is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. Listen to this. Together with a desire to alleviate it. So when Jesus came across a leper, how would everybody else respond? They would go to the other side of the street. They would completely ignore them. They would say, you know what, you got to ring a bell and say, I'm unclean so none of us have to touch you, see you, get close to you. And what did Jesus do? He had compassion for the lepers. And he went and he, he touched them. Healed them. He wasn't just compassionate, he was kind. Kindness is a type of behavior marked by acts of generosity. Consideration, meaning that you consider others better than yourself, that that you actually don't look at people and measure how you're going to treat them by by who they are. When we talk about that consideration that He gave, it's what made Jesus stand out. He would go to the tax collector. He would go to the prostitute. He would go to the sinner to the point that everybody would look at Him and all the religious leaders would say, look at Jesus. 
He's a glutton and a drunkard. Look who he hangs out with. He's trying to, listen, they rejected those people. They gave up on those people. They didn't believe there was salvation for those people. But Jesus was kind even to those who had no way to return it. There was a gentleness about Jesus. He didn't expect reward or praise. Jesus often chose those that society had shunned to be the recipient of his kindness. Zacchaeus is another great example of that. I want to ask you a question. Do you have deep feelings for the people in this life that are hurting? Unwed mothers, maybe? Someone who's experienced a very difficult divorce? Someone who's come into financial ruin? The person that you see all the time that sits completely alone and they don't seem to have any friend? The sinner? See, why do we reject people like that? Why do we walk by people like that? You know what God's called us to? Put on kindness, put on gentleness, put on compassion. If you can walk through this life and not see people and not care about people, then you haven't put on Christ. Also, put on a heart that's humble. Not only a heart that cares, but look at what it goes on and says in verse 12 there at the end, that you have this kindness, but you also have this humility, gentleness, and and patience. When we think about Jesus, we think about humility. Humility is a word that that in this culture, they wouldn't have understood it. They, They almost didn't have a word for it until Christianity came along because humility was looked at not as a virtue, but a vice. It was looked at like weakness, and it was never considered to be something positive until Jesus came. Because Jesus, when he would describe himself, he would say, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. He described himself as meek. He described himself as humble. And that was a strange thing for these people because it meant that you cared for others more than yourself. It meant that you did things not out of a desire for power or prestige, but you just did it because it was right and good. And and it showed compassion and it showed that you cared about people. They were not used to that. When you think about humility, there's three components to it. It's utter dependence on God's mercy. As believers, it's why the Bible says that he, listen, it says that, that the humble, he will receive, right? And he will exalt, but the proud, he will resist. It says that humility begins with an understanding that I am not the creator, I am the created. And the Creator is the one who has said what is right and wrong and good and holy and what is unholy. And we put ourselves under His authority and we listen to what He has to say because He is God and we are not. We're humbled because there has to come a place in our life and a time in our life. Go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who are destitute spiritually, who have nothing to offer God. We have nothing for which we can say, you owe me salvation. I deserve heaven. We know that that is not true. What we deserve is death and separation. What we deserve is the consequence of our sins. But if we come humbly to God and we recognize our need and we seek his forgiveness and we surrender ourselves to him, believing he died for us, listen, he takes that humble person and he exalts them and he saves them. Humility starts with a dependence on God's mercy. We know we need it. It also is an unconcern for power, prestige, and position. And thirdly, it's an unquestioning acceptance of God's word. You see, again, how could the greatest example not be Jesus? Remember what Jesus, what was said of him in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself. And he became like the likeness of men. He took on flesh, right? And he obeyed God the Father, God's word, God's promises through the millennia that a Messiah would come and a Messiah would have to die the guilt or the innocent for the guilty. And Jesus took that upon himself. And remember, when Jesus lived his life, he never said, I'm doing this for me or I'm going to do things my way. What did he always say? I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. I don't say anything except what the Father tells me to say. I don't go anywhere except where the Father tells me to go. He had yielded himself. Humility. It's the call of every believer. It is what we must put on a heart of humility. The most telling verse I think in scripture about Christ's humility was in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23 when it said, "When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly." And the third grouping is he put on a heart, or we are to put on a heart that forgives. He says we bear with one another. That idea of bearing with one another means that you know what? People are like weight, aren't they? And, and listen, that means everybody thinks you're weight. And everybody around you is weight because all of us, we carry things, don't we? Hurts, pains, sins, struggles. We're all on this very difficult journey, and you know what? It, many times it's the very thing that we're avoiding is we begin to not trust and we begin to avoid relationships because relationships cause us to bear weight. But what does it say? That a true believer puts on that willingness to bear with others. And listen, Part of that bearing with others means that we have to learn to forgive. And the greatest motivation for being a forgiving person is that you are a forgiven person. Now, when you consider your sin against God 
Someone else's sin against you is absolutely nothing. It's minuscule compared to the offenses and the sins that you have committed against God. And God is saying, listen, if I forgive you, then you should put on a heart that is willing to forgive others. And you say, well, you mean, Aaron, those that have, that have changed, right? You mean I have to have a good attitude towards those who've made everything right? No, I'm saying you have to go to the point that you love your enemy. You have to go to the point like Jesus where I want you to think about what he said. As they were nailing him to the cross, what were his words to them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you say, well, that's Jesus. Okay, fast forward. Get to the book of Acts. Get into chapter 8, 7, 8, 9 of the book of Acts, and you have a problem because there is Stephen, one of the first deacons. And Stephen is standing there, and all he did was preach the gospel, and they did to him what they, tried to, what they did to Jesus. They were going to take his life for speaking the truth, for telling the truth about who Jesus is, and that Jesus loved them and wanted to save them. And rather than receiving the message, they started to pick up rocks and to stone him. And when he stood there, and he was dying, and they were still throwing the stones at him, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, Christian, you have to put on all of these things, a heart that cares, a heart that is humble. You have to put on a heart that is willing to forgive 70 times 7. I know what you're thinking. Well, you know what? Jesus is different than me. He doesn't have to try. This is who Jesus is by nature. Well, I want you to hear me clearly once again. I want you to understand that our mission is to allow Jesus to be what he is in us. That's what I'm asking you today. To surrender and to give him control to the point that you understand, I can't be that. I can't be that humble. I can't be that forgiving. That's good because Jesus is looking at you going, I know. I know. But this is why I died. Not just to forgive you, but to change you and to equip you and to empower you. And if you will just let go and let me have control of you, I'll live through you. And now we're on to something, aren't we? Now we're going to experience real change. And, and it's not up to whether or not you can do it. That's why all of these things that are mentioned in this section go to Galatians. These are the fruit of the Spirit. They're not the fruit of the flesh. They're not the fruit that you can produce as a human being. They are only fruits that the Holy Spirit of God can produce in us. And lastly, our bond in Christ. Our position, our purity, and our bond in Christ. It's very simple how it continues through the rest of this text. It says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So first and foremost, our bond in Christ, he says, let love bind us together. You may not realize it, but love is like the super glue in Scripture. It's what holds families together. It's what holds friendships together. It's what holds 
any relationship in this life within the church, it is the glue that holds everything together. The fulfillment of the law is love for God and love for other people. If you want to condense everything God had to say about who you are and how you're to live, you condense it with the word love. And so what does he say to us? Let love be the glue. How is a church unified? Because love for each other is the glue. How will people know that we are his disciples? The love that we have one for another. It's like the belt that holds all the garments in place. All the virtues we've talked about, they derive from love. And you say, well, how do I get love? Where does love come from? Very simple. The Bible says that God is love. If he has you, if he's controlling you, if you've surrendered to him, love will not be an option because God is love. He's the one dwelling inside of you. You see, this Christian walk we're talking about, this isn't, again, something that you say no to over and over. The no's, the no's. It is saying yes to someone to this God who is love, and you're saying, Lord, bind us together. Help us to love. Let us be patient. Let us be kind. Let us not keep record of wrong. Let us hope all things and believe all things and endure all things and bear all things so that love never fails. And he also says, let peace rule our hearts. There's two aspects, again, to peace, practical and positional, like we talked about with this idea of holiness. When we say let Christ or let the peace of Christ rule our hearts, what we're saying is that we can block the peace of God. We can smother it. We can try to force it out. We can get in the way of it. And what he says is quit doing that. Let the peace of God rule. You know what that means? It means that you've got to cling to every promise that God has given. And when things, and you say, here's the practical. When money's getting tight and you feel like you're not going to be able to make ends meet, you know what you do? You have a choice. You can either squelch the peace of God, you can push it away and you can worry and, and you can be anxious and you can drive yourself nuts, or you can sit back and say, you know what? God, he takes care of sparrows. He clothes the lilies of the fields, right? And he loves me far more. And what did he say? You don't have to worry about where you're going to lay your head, the clothes you're going to put on your back. He said, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I will take care of all of these things. You see how you have to choose to let the peace of God rule in your life? It's a choice. It's slowing down when you're anxious and remembering the power of God, remembering the presence of God in your life, remembering the promises of God in your life. So that nothing robs you of that peace. Because when you lose peace, you lose your mind, don't you? Families split over issues like money. Worry will kill you and your family. Anxiety, stress. And he says, listen, it doesn't have to be that way. But the most literal translation, it's interesting, of this verse, it says, and it's, it's really a cool translation here when you think about it, or the understanding of the Greek word, what it's saying is, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. That's what it means, rule. It's a picture, think of sports, an umpire. That the peace of Christ is going to make the decision in your life for you. So when your heart is not settled, 
when your feelings are clashing, when, when, when even think about a church, think about a family, when you've got everybody trying to pull in two directions at the same time, he's saying, go back and remember, look to Christ and ask him to bring peace. Ask him what you should do in these situations and choose to have the peace of God. Let that peace be the umpire in your life. He is the arbiter between conflicting emotions If we will accept his decisions and his word, we cannot go wrong in our relationships. Let love bind us. Let peace rule our hearts. Thirdly, let the word of God dwell within you. This is probably actually the easiest of these things. But we make it the hardest. He's saying let God's word find a home in your heart. What's interesting about the study of God's word, it's not difficult. It's not expensive. It costs you nothing but time. He says we're to read His Word, to hear His Word. That's what it says in this text, to meditate on His Word, to go to the extent of singing His Word. Much of the songs that we sing in church, they are simply songs that reflect or are verbatim scriptures. And he says that our lives should be saturated with the Word of God. And let me tell you why that's important. Because if I'm reading the Word and you're reading the Word and we're both committed to obeying the Word, you see how we're going to be unified? Again, I want to remind the church, the misquestion that was asked of me when I was brought on as pastor in this church, someone asked the question. Let me ask you a question, Pastor Aaron. How are you going to bring unity to Hepsua Baptist Church? You know what my answer was? I don't bring unity to the church. We bring unity to the church. It isn't up to me that we have you all I'm going to do is preach the word and then either I and you are going to obey it and we will have unity because if we're all listening to the spirit if we're all obeying the word if we're all willing to humble ourselves and do these things listen the God in the spirit in you the, the person of Christ in you and if he's in me you think he's going to take us different directions no he's going to bind us together And when we start to demand our way, he's going to say to us, if we'll listen, you know what? You're being selfish. We don't choose music in the church based on one person. We have a whole group of people we're trying to minister to. Do we really care what color the carpet is in a building? What color we're going to put on the walls? Do we really care about silly things that most churches Fight over when what he says is, you know what, you ought to really be passionate. How about you put all that passion and all that anxiety and all that fight? How about you put that energy towards witnessing? Towards sharing with the lost? Towards the community that's around you? How about you take all of that and focus it outward instead of I, I, I? You see, if all of us would be in the Word and obey the Word and know the Word and be saturated with the Word of God day by day, moment by moment... In our life, it would bring unity to this body. And lastly, as the band comes up, he says that love binds us and the peace rules our hearts and the word of God should be dwelling or making a home within us. And lastly, he just says, let all that you do be for his glory. All of us seeking not our own glory, not our own way, not our own things, but all of us seeking the glory of God 
He says, listen, for us as believers, here's how you need to see your life. Your life is not spiritual and secular, meaning that we divide it up Sunday and Wednesday. It's a Christ thing. Monday to Friday, uh, maybe, maybe not. You see, every decision that you make in life, hear me, it's a spiritual decision. Every decision you make in life is a spiritual decision. You can't segment these things out of your life. All that you do, try to avoid the trap of seeing some things as spiritual and other things as meaningless. I love the way Ray Steadman put it. He said, everything in life, every activity can become an act of worship. Kids, when you honor and obey your parents and take the trash out on time, guess what? That in itself is an act of worship. This dad behind me just said, preach. <laughs> Husbands, when you love your wife as Christ loves the church. Preach. preach. <laughs> right? All these things. Everything that you do is for God's glory. So all that you do, every single thing that you do, do it as unto the Lord. And if we're all living that way, think about what that means for our families and for our churches. It's a bond that will not be broken. And I want to close with this, and I want to challenge you with this thought. I, there's a story about a young lady out of the 1880s. I mean, think about how long ago that was. But many of the problems they faced were the same problems that we face today. And there were many who were hungry, many who were poor, many who were homeless. And there was a young lady that literally had nothing, and she, along with many others, had to go find empty buildings, and they would go squat in those buildings. It's the only way they could find a way to live, the only place they could live. And out of that poorness, you can imagine that there were many decisions that people had to make that were horrendous decisions. These places were very seedy, and for many of these people to survive, they made choices that were devastating prostituting themselves, selling themselves, steal, just whatever you could imagine. Just such a godless place where there's so much pain and hurt. Said that one day a man came into that building to live there. He had become homeless, but he was a Christian man. And this girl said that she was the first Christian, or he was the first Christian that she had ever met in her life. And he treated her different than every other man that she'd ever met. He respected her. He loved her. He cared for her. He showed compassion and he showed gentleness. And he gave without any expectation of anything else in return. She'd never met a person like this. He taught her the word of God. He taught her about Jesus day in and day out. And after two years of ministering, not just to her, but to all the people that lived there, this man finally got his feet back under him. And as he was leaving this place that he had been squatting for two years, he stood there with a suitcase and this little girl comes out. And she runs to him and she gives him just this big hug. All the other people had gathered to say goodbye and there were a lot of tears. And as he turned to walk away, he got a few steps away from this girl this teenage girl and he hears her voice behind him and this is what she said she said please sir 
Are you him? Are you Jesus? Isn't that who we should be? Do you see that that's all that this text is saying? Is that we live in such a way. We were saved for this. We were created for this. This is who we were made to be from the very beginning and remade to be in Christ Jesus, that we would live in such a way that we would walk away in any environment that we were in. People might just think, these aren't just words for them. This is life. This is, this is like God in flesh. Is there any part of you that stirs that you would say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I just wish, wish once in my life that I might walk away and someone call after me and say, please, sir, please, ma'am, are, are you him? Are you Jesus? Father, we just thank you. And Lord, you give us grace and, and you've saved us. And, and Lord, you've given us life. We don't have to be shackled in sin. We don't have to be who we were. But Lord, we can make a difference in the lives of people that are around us. If we'll just slow down, if we just will care. We don't have to be in good circumstances like that man who was destitute, who had nothing to offer this woman except Christ, except an example of what God looks like. But it changed everything for her. Lord, there's no one here that you can't use in a mighty way. And it's so simple. We make it so hard. So Lord Jesus, I pray that as we go into this time of prayer that you would just help us to ask the question, do we even desire, does our heart long, is there anything that stirs within us that makes us want someone to see Jesus in us that clearly? And what are we willing to do to surrender so that it can be? So Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they've heard the gospel today, they've, they've heard the truth that you can forgive and you're willing to forgive if they will turn from their sins and cry out to you, you died for them on the cross so their sins could be forgiven. You were buried and you rose again so they can have life. That's exactly what they saw in these baptisms. So Lord, if someone needs Christ today, may they surrender to him. May they just pray today, asking forgiveness, believing that you died for them and surrendering. Lord, they can pray right where they are and just come while people are singing and say, I've given my life to Christ, I wanna be baptized. Lord, do something in us today. May we close our eyes in this moment and pray and, Lord, ask you to speak to us. That's what happens when we read your word. That's what happens when we gather. You speak to us, and this is our chance to speak to you. So, Lord, let us close our eyes and let us pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That's mocking. He's in He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's
the sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. 